This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up your Bibles, if you would please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And as you're turning there, uh, let me make a, a couple recommendations to you, if I could. Uh, we are in a series uh, that we're calling Weakness. And it's uh, talking about uh, biblical passages that deal with how uh, our weakness is a platform for God to dis- demonstrate His power. Here's a book that I found very helpful. It's called Weakness is the Way, uh, Life with Christ, Our Strength. It's by J.I. Packer. And if his name's on it, it's uh, generally good to read my experience 100 years from now of all the current authors that we're reading. He's one that I think people will still be reading. Maybe not this book, but other, other things that he's written. So uh, this is very helpful. He's like a guy in his mid-80s maybe or something like that. And he talks about some of his own weaknesses he's encountered uh, towards the end of life and how that has shown him his need for the Lord and how the Lord's met him. Weakness is the way. So it's, it's not uh, just for older folks, for everybody. Very helpful. And then this has nothing to do with our series, but it's just a book that's impacted me significantly. It's called Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung. Um, he's one of my favorite authors. Everything he writes, I've appreciated. Uh, but this is a book that's... Um, Subtitled, A Mercifully Short Book About a Really Big Problem. And a guy running around with the exclamation point as, a, as his head, which is the way many of us feel so much of the time. So it's crazy good. It deals with being crazy busy. And if your life is busy, active, and feels a lot of control at times, this book is worth, uh, worth your, your time. So re- those are both back at the resource table, and I wanted to let you know about them. Okay, as I said, we've been in a series on weakness. We've looked at Gideon and how God showed his strength uh, to deliver and rescue his people uh, through him. We've looked at Paul and how Paul came to Corinth in weakness, knew nothing but Christ and him crucified, and that was the power of God that he trusted in. Uh, Last week, Rob brought a message having to do with the disciples and their weakness, particularly uh, Simon Peter and his inability to uh, catch fish and how the Lord, uh, with a word, brought in a huge catch for them, how the Lord can act uh, in powerful ways. Uh, in our own weakness. And we've done this and we focused it on these passages, not because we have some morbid fascination with our inability. Uh, I don't have a morbid fascination with our own weakness, but because by understanding our weakness from a biblical point of view, by embracing it, Paul actually says that he's content in weaknesses, that he boasts in them, because therein he finds the power of God. God's grace is sufficient for him in times of weakness. God's power is made perfect in human weakness. So it is by understanding and acknowledging our weaknesses and in humility coming to the Lord and asking for his strength. That's where we encounter the power of God. So the goal hasn't been, let's just celebrate Weakness. The goal has been, let's celebrate the power of God and acknowledge weakness um, and embrace that uh, because that's where we have an opportunity to experience God's power. Weakness equals opportunity, and that's what we've been trying to emphasize. Well, today we're going to look at a weak group of churches. 
It's a group of churches that we've already read about in the book of Acts, but it's the Macedonian churches. So I want to read from uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 7, and read about how God works powerfully in weak churches to demonstrate uh, his strength as they sacrificially give. So let's look at uh, 8, 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had stayed, started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Let's pray. Lord, I pray right now that you would open our eyes to the grace your grace upon us. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes afresh today to what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would, Lord, um, grip our hearts and that your grace today would produce a joy and a generosity and a freedom like nothing we've experienced before, Lord. We pray for freedom for your people, and we know that comes through uh, your gospel message and through your spirit's power, working it into our souls and into our minds. So Lord, we pray today that you would visit us and that you would speak to us through this, these words of scripture. I pray that you would empower me to proclaim your word truthfully, accurately, and that it would have good results, that we would be hearers and doers of your word, and that you would bear fruit among us by this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's what's happening in this passage. Paul is challenging this church in Corinth. He's challenging them to participate uh, in a collection that he is taking. He's inspiring them to actually do so. Uh, If you turn back in your Bible a few pages to the end of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, he describes this, what he calls a collection. Look at verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And so he has uh, the church in Jerusalem, uh, which is where it all began, and uh, this is, these are the Jewish Christians. They are enduring a difficult season. They are struggling. And so what Paul is doing is he's going to a number of the um, Gentile churches, and he's receiving a collection of funds for their relief. So he will take this and he's going to take it to Jerusalem. And it it does a couple things. It meets a very practical need, but it also just reemphasizes and solidifies the unity 
of the churches, and particularly the unity between Jew and Gentile as the Gentile churches are seeking to be a blessing to the church in Jerusalem. And he's told them, you put aside a little bit each week. So, uh, so not going to show up when I get there and, you know, some Sunday and see what you got on you and empty your pockets, but let's prepare is what he's saying. Well, it seems that the Corinthians started off well, but they've been slack in their preparation. And so he is, as you read chapters eight and nine, you see, uh, he is challenging them to finish what they started, uh, to be prepared to serve these other churches. And what he does in, to encourage them is he doesn't sort of, it's not some kind of guilt trip thing where he's laying out all the difficulties in Jerusalem and can't you pitch in? And uh, he doesn't do that, but he tries to instead draw their attention to God. And he talks about the grace of God. The word grace is used all over this chapter. And, and his point is that the grace of God to us This is his point. The grace of God to us should overflow in the grace of giving through us. Grace is giving through us. So the grace of God to us touches our hearts, but it doesn't stay with us. It's to overflow in grace giving, the grace of giving through us. That is the point that he makes here. He's kind of giving a Biblical philosophy of giving to need is what he is talking about here. So I want to look at two ideas in this passage. The first is that grace generates giving. Grace generates giving. And the second one is his charge to the Corinthians and to us to excel in the grace of giving. So grace generates giving, and we are to excel in the grace of giving. This is one one, um, facet of a culture of grace, where the gospel has gripped a people, a lot of things will happen. But one of the things that will happen where the gospel has gripped hearts is that it will produce, we're going to see both joyful people and generous people. Generosity is the fruit of a heart affected by the gospel. And so he's calling them to that. To inspire the Corinthians, here's what he does. He points to the example of the Macedonians. He says, uh, verse 1, we don't want you to uh, be, uh, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches in Macedonia. And then this is what he tells us, verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So he's saying these churches are enduring significant struggling, significant affliction. Significant poverty, but here's what that worked in them. It produced joy, and it produced a wealth of generosity. This is what he describes has happened in these churches. Now, the churches in Macedonia, we've already read about them in the book of Acts. They are churches like Berea, uh, Thessalonica, Philippi. You'll probably recall we spent a lot of time, it was a big chunk of time, a big chunk of chapter uh, on the, the Philippian jailer who was converted after Paul and Silas had been beaten severely with rods and then were worshiping the God in, God in the jail and all that. So that's one of the churches. So these churches, this letter is written some years later. And so by this point, these churches are experiencing um, a severe test. How does he word it? They're experiencing a severe test of affliction and they're experiencing extreme poverty. Now, scholars tell us that during this time period, it's not as if these cities of Macedonia were seriously impoverished cities. 
It's not like everybody in the city was uh, extremely poor or anything like that. It's probably this test of affliction that they've experienced that's contributed to their extreme poverty. We know that even when Paul preached the gospel and planted these churches, there was persecution right out of the bat. So likely what has happened in these churches is there is ongoing persecution. The kind of social rejection that these folks have experienced for turning to Christ. The kind of social, uh, social rejection that could affect their being hired, that could affect someone buying their goods. Uh, they may have had some of their possessions in, in, in persecution confiscated from them. But some kind of affliction that they have experienced that has led to extreme poverty. The word extreme poverty means down to earth, or down to the depth rather, I'm sorry, down to the depth poverty. One commentator translated it, rock-bottom poverty. They're in rock-bottom poverty. So Paul is drawing attention to the Macedonians. wants the Corinthians to say, let me tell you about these people who are in rock-bottom poverty in the midst of an affliction. That they are people who should be receiving the offering. That's part of the point. They should be the ones who are probably being helped. They're the ones who need resources. They're the ones who need relief and need aid. They are weak. As we have looked at passages of weakness, they are weak. They are weak in resources. They are weak in power and in strength. They, are, they don't have a lot to contribute. They are a place of weakness financially, but they are experiencing the power of God in an unusual way. In an unusual way, we could say this is almost miraculous, that someone going through a test of affliction, that the result would be abundant joy. That's what Paul says. Abundant joy. And that in their poverty, rock-bottom poverty, the result has been a wealth of generosity. This is, this is nothing but the Spirit of God working through them. And that's what's important to note here, is that Paul holds up the Macedonians, and he's going to talk about them throughout the passage. He holds them up as an example, but he doesn't want the Corinthians primarily aware of the Macedonians. What does he want them primarily aware of? Well, look at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given to the churches. He wants them to know about grace. The Macedonians merely serve as an illustration. They're just a test case. They're a case in point. They're an illustration. They're a story that shows, look what the grace of God does. His point is to say, look what God's grace does when it grips a people. When a people receive, they receive, it's passive. We want you to know the grace of God that was given to them, that has been given in the past, with continuing results is the nature of the verb. There, That it's an ongoing, they've received and continue to receive. They have received the grace of God. That is, they've received the message of Jesus, that he died for sinners, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead, ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That Jesus died and rescued us from our sins. Jesus gives us new life. The Father adopts us into his family as dearly loved children. They found out about the grace, the story of what God has done, that they couldn't be godly enough to be accepted by God, that they could never, by religious activity, by moral character, they never could be approved by God by their actions, but they're only approved by God through the work of Jesus Christ. That's grace. That grace, when they heard it and believed, they were converted. 
And that grace continues in them, and that grace transforms, and that grace shapes them into the image of Jesus. And so the grace of God is alive in them. He's wanting them to know that look what grace does in weak people. Needy people. Destitute, literally here financially destitute. But in weak people, look what God's grace has done. His primary point isn't to just make a comparison. Maybe you grew up in a family where your parents at some point said something like this to you or you felt it regularly. Why can't you be like your big brother? Why can't you be like your younger sister? That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying, man, look at all I've done for you, all God's done for you. Why can't you just be like the Macedonians? He doesn't want them fixated on the Macedonians. He wants them fixated on the grace of God, the favor of God to those who deserve judgment, the the love of God transforming their hearts so that they love their neighbor as Christ has loved them. And they're showing tangible expression of love for neighbor by contributing in their own need to serve the church in Jerusalem and to care for them in their time of need. Notice how the wording is just, well, it's remarkable. I mean, it's almost shocking. When you see the wording of, of what the grace of God produces in weak people. Verse 2, severe test of affliction, grace produces abundance of joy. Severe test of affliction, and they're experiencing an abundance of joy. Extreme rock-bottom poverty overflowed with a wealth of generosity. He's taking these opposites. Affliction, in affliction, they have joy. In poverty, they have a wealth of generosity that they give graciously and freely. Grace produces a joy and a generosity in the worst of times in the Macedonians. And so their giving is not tied, their love for the church at Jerusalem, their love for others is not tied to their circumstances. Their giving is ah-circumstantial. It's not non-circumstantial. It's detached from circumstances. Their giving is based on the grace of God among them. It's not even based on the need. It's not like they were really aware of the need, so they gave. It's not based on the need in the first place. It's based on the grace of God given among them that leads them to give in a risky manner. Most, let's be honest, most of our giving is not risky. Probably, and I can't, I don't know everyone here, so I can't say everyone, but the vast majority of us here would never be characterized as extreme poverty especially not by their standards. For sure no one has extreme poverty that has been brought on by systemic persecution for the faith. That's not happening in the U.S. yet. That's not happening. So the the reality is that we might not be able to relate to where they are, but they have given in a risky way. I'm challenged by the example here. I'm challenged by that. That Grace leads them to give because they trust the Lord. Grace produces this joy. It produces this generosity. But grace fundamentally produces trust. That's what Paul says in Romans. He says, look, if Christ has done all that he has done to meet your greatest need, 
which is to forgive your sin and to give you new life and to reconcile you to the Father, to remove the barrier that was there, to bring your dead soul to life, to take you out of darkness to light, to open your blinded eyes. If he has done all of that so that you're converted, if he's done all that, can you not trust him for the many smaller things? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him freely, graciously, generously, lovingly give us, provide for us all things, he writes in Romans 8. And so there is this sense of because the grace of God is affecting them, it not only produces joy, it not only produces generosity, but I think in that generosity implicit here is it produces trust. that They can trust God with their future. And so they... they don't have much, but what they have, they're willing to give freely. I, I read this story. It's a little bit kind of a week late because last week we had Orphan Sunday, and it's a story about orphans, but it's a story about God's provision and how confidence in his provision uh, affects us. This is out of a, a book called uh, Whose Money Is It Anyway? It's written by John MacArthur. And he writes this story in, in one of the chapters. World War II was the most devastating conflict in history, causing the death of millions of people, especially in Europe. At the close of the war, the Allies, as part of their effort to rebuild Europe, assumed the care of millions of orphans from cities all over the continent. Relief officials built various camps to care for those children. As the program developed, the capacity of the camps had to be expanded because of the vast number of children that were being found and brought to the facilities. The orphans received the best care available, including the healthiest food and drink. But the administrators at one of the camps became very disturbed because the children, after a few weeks, were no longer sleeping. Even though they received three meals a day, were clothed and bathed, and had adequate beds to sleep in, the children began staying awake all night. The perplexed officials interviewed the boys and girls as part of a study to discover the source of the problem. Before long, they found a solution and implemented it. The dormitory attendants began placing a small loaf of bread into the hand of each child at bedtime. So before falling asleep, the last thing each boy or girl would experience was the feel of bread in their hand. In a matter of days, the children were all sleeping through the night, reassured by the bread that there would be food for tomorrow. They had been anxious because past experience had taught them that having food one day didn't necessarily guarantee anything for the next. But when they began to fall asleep with a small loaf in one hand, their fear was dispelled. Philippians 4.19 is the loaf of bread God places into your hand each day. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. MacArthur writes, you have no reason to fear tomorrow because God will meet all your needs. And that should have a very positive effect on how you give. That is the story of the Macedonians. They, they have a grip on the gospel, the grace of God given among the churches. They have a grip, or a better way to say it would be the gospel has a grip on them so that they can look to their future with a sense of freedom, a sense of trust, a sense of rest in their soul, a sense of confidence that no amount of money in the bank can produce. 
Some of the most anxious, worried people are the wealthiest people. People who have the most, many will tell you, uh, that it has brought on tremendous anxiety and burden to manage all that they have. A, a, A great supply for tomorrow is a very poor place to put our trust. And the Macedonians demonstrate this, that the grace of God caused them to be free because God had their future in their hands. He was the loaf of bread that they went to sleep clinging each night. They gave what they could give, and then some. Look at verse 3. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Of their own accord. That is, they were resolved to participate in this offering. They were giving freely. So in other words, Paul didn't coerce them. Paul didn't manipulate them. Paul received what they wanted to give. They did it of their own accord. And that, this is not the purpose of this sermon, but I, I think this is a great illustration of how we're to understand obedience in the Christian life. Obedience matters in the Christian life. But this is a great illustration of how they obey. The grace of God affects their hearts so that they're joyful and generous. And then they choose the languages of their own accord. It's not that grace just made this happen, that somehow grace, they just woke up and said, hey, where'd all my money go? Oh, grace took it. Uh, where, where is she? I mean, it's not like that. It's not like grace, they just passively were there and grace emptied their pockets. It's that the grace of God touched their hearts, the gospel formed their souls, affected them so that they cared about others and loved others. And then of their own accord, they chose to give. That's how it works. All obedience, and all, whether it's giving or any other kind of obedience, always must be tethered to the grace of God. It's the grace that affects us that we then are to respond and obey the Lord. Not to earn his favor, but because he's already showered his favor on us. Grace came to them. They have his favor. Now it's their joy to obey him and serve and love others. Look what else he says. He says that they gave what they could and then some. They, they calculated, what, what can I really give? And then they went beyond that amount. They went beyond their means of their own accord. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I mean, that is one of the craziest verses in the Bible, is it not? Extreme poverty... So what do you do? Beg that the offering comes to you. Paul, we're begging. Can we get 50% of the Jerusalem offering? Have you seen what's happening in our churches? No. They beg to participate in the offering. They want to take part in the relief of the saints. This word taking part is a word that, you, that you're familiar with, perhaps, if you've been around you know, uh, church very much. Now and then Greek words are tossed out. It's a word koinonia. It it's, means participation, fellowship, communion. They want, to, they want to be in the fellowship of the offering. They want to be in the communion of the offering. They're saying that we want to be a part of this. Now, I'm going to speculate. This isn't in the text, so I'll try to always give you a signal when I speculate because this is take it or leave it. If I'm reading you the Bible, it's take it. You don't have a choice if you're a Christian. If I'm reading you the Bible, if I'm speculating, take it or leave it. So this is take it or leave it. I wonder if Paul didn't even give them an opportunity like Corinth to participate in the offering. That's why he says they begged. He's, he's charging the Corinthians to give. He's calling them to. 
But wouldn't you think if there's like a really poor church and they're under all this persecution and they're totally suffering? I mean, wouldn't you think that, that, uh, that you wouldn't go to, a, to them and say, hey guys, man, there's some really hurting people. And can you give to them? They're like, hurting people? Who, who do you think we are? How about could they give to us? So perhaps they're not even charged to give. Now we don't know that. Now I'm back on to not speculating. But what it says is that they begged. That's what's for sure. They begged to participate. They want to be part of the fellowship of the giving. They want to be a part of this. And it is also a great blessing. It is a, it is a joy. It's their joy to participate. Not participating would affect their joy. Because there's a joy for them to overflow in generosity. Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, it's more blessed, he quotes Jesus, it's not Paul, he quotes Jesus, it's more blessed to give than receive, it's better, it's a, it's a greater blessing to give than it is to receive. That's so counterintuitive, who thinks that way? That, that's, that's the effect of the gospel on a heart and a mind. I used to have this friend, uh, I haven't seen him in years, that's why I say used to, but a friend, and um, when I was, uh, Ginger and I uh, got married, Grew up in Texas, went to college in Texas, got married, and then moved to California, kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a Beverly Hillbillies kind of a thing. And so we moved to California, and I was a seminary student and uh, worked for free in a church internship. Uh, loved the church and those free internships. But, uh, so that's what I did, and, uh, and my wife worked in the marketplace. And so we were poor. We were, uh, we were poor seminary student. And uh, so I had this friend I went to college with. We graduated at the same time. He went and got like a real job and made a lot of money. So he was a, for a young guy, he was making a lot of money. We're in our mid-20s. And so we would get together sometimes and have meals, and he would always want to buy the meal. And so, you know, like being a, being a good Christian, I, I'd try to reach for the check and kind of argue for it. I mean, as a, as a Christian, you should always be seeking to pick up the check, I believe. So trying to pick up the check, and but you've got two Christians, there's going to be a fight. And uh, so anyway... And, and, and some of us give, it, give up the fight really quick. We wave the white flag super quickly, but uh, it was an insincere offer, I think, there, because you gave up very quickly. But um, so anyway, we would go eat, and he would use different lines on me. Like he would start off with, I have a job, and you work for free. I have money, and you're poor. Let me buy it. Oh, that's pretty convincing. Okay, I can agree with that. Uh, but then one time, he used this line on me. I'll never forget it. We were eating, and... And he grabs a check, I'm going to buy the food. And I said, let me, at least let me pay my part. Or let, you always get it. Let me get it. One of those kind of lines. And this is what he said to me. He said, don't you dare steal my blessing. He was like, this is a blessing. This, I love doing this. This is a joy. And it wasn't hyper-spiritual. It may sound that way. But it wasn't. He was just like, this is a, it's a blessing to give. Are you trying to steal? Are you trying to take away the opportunity I have to enjoy this, to be able to use what I have for the glory of God, for joy? Are you trying to steal my money? And then I'm feeling like all guilty. Oh, goodness. Well, sorry. Wow. Why don't you just hand me a couple hundred dollars on the way out? And then you'll be really, you'll be really blessed. And uh, far be it for me to interrupt your blessing. I, he has the gift of giving. I've got the gift of receiving. So this, could, this is going to be a friendship made in heaven. But, but do you see the point? It's more blessed to give and receive. I think that's what's going on here. We're begging you earnestly, verse 4, begging you earnestly for the favor. How much more can Paul say it? This is a joy. This is a favor. Don't cut us out of the opportunity to participate. We want to take part, the fellowship, in the relief of the saints. That's what they say. 
One commentator wrote this. He said, we usually think of fundraisers, if we want to use that term for what Paul is doing, we usually think of fundraisers as encouraging those who can afford to give, to give more. In the Macedonian churches, those who had nothing begged to give. Why? Paul's answer is the grace of God. That's the answer. Why do they beg? It's the grace of God. It's in the text as clear as it can be. I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given. And that's what it produces. He, uh, he makes this wonderful statement about the Macedonian churches, the Christians there, that they didn't just want to give their money. Sometimes that can be a small thing, not for them. But it, they gave something much greater. Look at verse 5. They begged to participate, verse 5, in this, not as we expected. Well, I guess not. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So it's like Paul says, okay, yeah, you can participate in the offering and the basket comes around and they're like climbing into it. I'm giving myself. That's what he says. What was amazing is when the grace of God touched them, they gave themselves. They gave themselves. They weren't having a pity party about their affliction. They weren't going inward when things were bad. They weren't just taking some me time to focus on us. They're saying, we're going to give ourselves. And as a subset of me is my finances. Finances are a good barometer of the heart, but they're just a subset of all that I have. My time, my gifts, my energy, which seems to be depleting with age, but there's still plenty there. Uh, my, my, my knowledge, my relationships, my finances, all that you are, all that you have. My ear to listen, my hands to serve, my feet to travel. All that we have. He's saying they gave everything, and not only to God, that's the ultimate, but also to us. Now, what's he saying? Is Paul rivaling God and saying, give yourself to me? No, Paul is leading the mission as the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's leading the mission. He said they were all in. They took part. They felt they were part of the fellowship of the mission, and they gave themselves to what we're about. They gave themselves to helping the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They gave themselves... Romans, Paul writes that in view of the mercy of God, offer yourself a living sacrifice. That's what they did. Sure, they gave of their finances, all that they had and then some, but they ultimately gave themselves. Here's this point. The grace of God to us should overflow in the grace of giving through us at every level. This is a very convicting, this is a hopeful passage. This should be very hopeful, but it is convicting. Because I can look at various areas of my life where I just don't think the walls are down to just be giving at every level, but there's hesitancy, there's care, there's reservation. God wants us to be those who are just opening our lives in view of his mercy. So grace generates giving. That's the point. It's not look, in the, look at the Macedonians and do likewise. It's look at the grace of God in the Macedonians. Pursue that grace and experience the same. Here's the last point he makes, is that he says grace generates giving, but also he calls them to excel in the grace of giving. Look at verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this, gra- in this act of grace also. Paul turns and he, he challenges them. He says, uh, Timothy's coming. 
And he's going to complete what's started, the setting aside finances on Mondays, or not Mondays, that would, that, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking first day of the week. Uh, Sunday is the first day of the week. So on Sundays, you can take what you set aside. And uh, he's coming to do that. So make sure that you excel in that. Now, look at the language here. I mean, it's just, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, startling language. He says, verse 6, so that he should complete among you this act of grace. So what he, he doesn't say, Timothy's coming to take up the offering. That's not what he says. Timothy, Timothy he did call it a collection in 1 Corinthians 16, but here he doesn't say, Timothy's coming to collect. This certainly isn't a bill. He's like, Timothy's coming to collect. Timothy's coming to take up the offering. No, Timothy's coming to complete the act of grace. And in case we miss that and say, what's he talking about? Look what he says in verse 7. Make sure that you excel in all this. See that you excel in this act of grace also. It's an act of grace. Giving is an act of grace because the grace of God has acted on us and we freely, under the favor of God, choose freely to give as well. It's not under compulsion, he's going to say later. It's not begrudging. That's why in chapter 9 he says, God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't need anybody's money. Okay, he's doing fine. He's just doing really, really well financially. He is not affected by the markets. He is not, God is not wringing his hand waiting for the job reports to come up. Are interest rates going up? Oh boy, God's worried about that. God is, that was sarcasm, God is not at all worried about anything financially. He owns everything. So what are you going to give to the God who has everything? He owns everything. He doesn't need anybody's money. He sends Jesus to adopt us, to to die for us, and then to save us, adopt us as his own so that we are a people of his possession. He wants our hearts. He wants our lives. He wants us to reflect his grace and his glory. That's what we're created for. And he wants his church to represent him, to demonstrate the freedom and the joy that the gospel produces. And God is not well represented by begrudging people who under uh, compulsion are eking out any kind of service, any kind of uh, giving or anything like this. He is wanting people who are changed. That's why it's an act of grace. It's an act of grace. That's why the Macedonians are overflowing with joy. That's why there's this this wealth of generosity, their back, their you know, arms aren't twisted behind their backs. It's not like a root canal. You know, the offering's not just this painful ordeal. It's like, man, that's what you created for, the freedom that comes from the gospel. They've experienced that. I want you to experience that, he says. And all these things you excel in, these are Corinthian, and this is the Corinthian deal right here, verse 7, faith in speech. They, they, they are all about speech gifts, primarily tongues, which they're entirely out of balance on. But tongues and prophecy, this ecstatic speech, man, they're all about that. He says, you excel in speech. You excel in knowledge. They are into that. The message of knowledge, the word of knowledge, they love that gift. Faith, you excel at that. Well, let's make sure that the grace of God grips your heart so you are as excited about funding those in need in Jerusalem by giving freely as you are all of these other spiritual gifts. That's what he's saying to them. See that you excel in this act of grace. That, that's, that's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for Grace Church, that, that we would excel in acts of grace. 
we be big on being recipients of grace and that that would turn into practical obedience in our lives, acts of grace. That we'd offer our very, our very selves, our very lives, that's what they offered. Next week, we're going to have an opportunity, as, as Rob shared earlier, to invest again in our generation's fund. I'm, I'm not uh, ignorant to the fact that our context is very different. We're not a room full of people in extreme poverty, perhaps experiencing persecution, uh, like they would have. Uh, and we are not receiving funds next week to give to you know, Jewish Christians who are in, in need in Jerusalem. I, I understand uh, that our giving won't be a, a statement about the unity of Jew and Gentile in redemptive history. I, got, I understand that. But the principles, I think... Uh, the principle is very transferable, that the grace of God to us is to overflow in the grace of giving through us. That is a transferable principle from this, pra- this passage. So I want to toss out here as we wrap up, and I'm about done, but I want to toss out a few um, ways to prepare for next Sunday. I'm going to give you two categories. The first is heart preparation, and the second is practical preparation. I don't mean that heart matters aren't practical. They are, but heart matters work themselves out in practicalities would be a better way to say it. So here's the heart preparation. I want to challenge slash encourage you uh, to read through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 this week. Repeatedly. I didn't teach it. I just taught you seven verses from it. Now, if you are in a through the Bible plan where you'd get off a week if you do this and that you're caught up to date and that would drive you absolutely nuts because you're so tied to it that you don't want to spend all of New Year's Eve catching up on the week you lose so that you can be done by the first, January 1st. And I only say that because I've done that kind of thing, so <laughs> I'm not mocking you. But um, if you're that tied to a plan, then let me ask you this. Can you do your plan at the normal time? And could you read Second Corinthians 8 and 9 at lunch, uh, at dinner, dinner table, family devotions, in the evening before you go to bed, something? Could you add it if you can't replace it? And could you look at Second Corinthians 8 and 9 and meditate on its contents? This, the grace of God in Christ, should be our motivation for giving. I'm glad about the video we showed you. I mean, I like the video. I'm really glad about the groundbreaking that's taking place in really soon. Like less than that, like in 45 minutes or something? Okay, we better wrap up. I'm really excited about that. But I don't want any of us giving because we saw a video and stood on a piece of land. I think we should participate because the grace of God has affected our hearts and he has spoken to us. So uh, let me encourage you to read that this week. Let me encourage you to pray that the gospel would come alive in your heart, that it would produce joy and generosity. Listen, if you are in a time of affliction right now, I want you to pray, I encourage you to pray that the grace of God would be real to you. If you are in affliction and what it is producing instead of abundant joy, that's his language, Instead of abundant joy and a wealth of generosity, if your affliction is producing bitterness, anger, discouragement, self-righteousness, unforgiveness, charging God, just, you know, sour disposition, impatience with God, despair with no sight of God present, if the affliction you're experiencing is producing hopelessness, There's probably a lot of reasons for that, but here's a really big one, that the grace of God is not having the effect that God wants it to have in your heart. 
Because there's a place to grieve, absolutely. There's a place to mourn, absolutely. There's a place to say, to, 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 to pray the Psalms of lament. But the grace of God, even in those times, will produce an under, an, a, a, a foundational joy in our souls and an outward orientation. That's God's goal, that he would produce that even during difficult times. So whatever your affliction is, it may not be like theirs, pray that the grace of God would work in your heart. I'm, and I'm, I want to pray that as well. Work in my heart this week. Here's the flow of this passage. This is what John Piper wrote about this passage of Scripture. This would be very helpful to get. He says, grace comes down, joy rises up, generosity flows out. That's, the fl- that's, that's what we read. Grace comes down, joy rises up, generosity flows out. That's my prayer for us this week when we come next week, that that would be our experience. Here's the practical preparation. That was heart stuff. Review, review the contents of the members meeting. We had a building update meeting last Wednesday. It would be really valuable to be current with what we shared there in terms of where we are in this process. It will be on the city. It's already on there, but it's going to be a little clearer. It's going to be on the city. Um, it'll say building update meeting or something like that. And the, the audio is on there. All you got to do is click and listen, and the notes are on there as well. So do that. Go over your card this week as Rob helped us. Let's do that. Let's look at that this week. He walked us through it. Let's pray about that. Uh, here's two other things you can do. Come to the groundbreaking, uh, which is in like 44 minutes now. And uh, come to the groundbreaking at Frisco Square. And then Friday morning's our normal prayer time. We're not going to add a prayer meeting, but I want to ask as many of us as possible, let's gather Friday morning. We always pray at 6.30. That's in the a.m. Uh, let's pray then. And you join us. If you've never been to that meeting, we pray down at the far end of the building at the conference center, conference room. So we'll pray in the conference room on Friday morning about this and come next week full of joy, trusting God to work powerfully. Trusting God. I believe God wants to do something. I believe God wants to reorient our attachments. I believe God wants to change our hearts. I believe God wants us to experience the grace of God in a new way. I really do. Wednesday, I shared the illustration. This is what I feel like and what I feel like our church is like at this season. That if you've ever seen like a three-year-old kid put on their dad's jacket and just be overwhelmed in material, uh, I sort of feel like that when we're standing on, that's, that will be my feeling when we're standing on this land in 43 and a half minutes now. When we are standing there, that will be the feeling like, God, what are we doing here? It's like you have draped a God-sized vision and a God-sized calling and a God-sized purpose over us. And we're just sort of stumbling around in weakness. And that's exactly where God wants us to be. Listen, if your vision for your life, if your vision for growth and holiness, if your vision for reaching the lost, if your vision for serving in your vocation, if your vision as a as a spouse and as a parent is something that's manageable that you can pull off and you've got it, then your vision is way too small. God wants our vision to be much bigger than we are so that we cry out in our weakness for his help. Where we are financially as a church and where we will need to be to, to, to actually build a building and not just roads, there is a gap there. And in all of our lives, there's gaps. The husband I'm supposed to be, God calls me, there's a gap there. The dad says, there's a gap. The employee I'm supposed to be, there's a gap. You, you experience the same. There's a gap. But we serve the God of the gap who delights to show his power when we will acknowledge our weakness and humble ourselves and ask for grace.
And so the gap that we're going to feel, we're going to trust that God is going to meet that in a powerful way. And that he's going to use, I believe he's going to use you and me of our own accord, like in Macedonia, to give sacrificially and graciously. That's the picture. God's given us a God-sized opportunity, a God-sized calling, a God-sized vision. And it it feels, it's real big on us. So let's pray and let's trust. It's not achievable by any human plan, but it is achievable by God. For as we stand up there today, we'll realize we're standing on dirt that we never paid for. It was given to us as a gift from God. And whatever God does in our church to mature us as a community, to save people, to mature us in holiness, it will be because of what he purchased and what he gave for us in Christ. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.